Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. All right, so we're going to kick off the book of Luke this morning. Uh, just a short text to get things started. We're going to be Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Just digging into the intro before we get into uh, the meat. But, but here it goes, first four verses. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time uh, past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. This is the word of the Lord, uh, and the opening to what is the uh, most extensive and, and detailed gospel account that you'll find in uh, the New Testament, the beginning of, of your Bible. So um, at my house, this thing has happened. My, my basement has turned into uh, kind of a catch-all play zone for the neighborhood boys. It's been this for a way for a while. It is not uncommon to have five, six, or maybe even seven little boys in the basement playing, especially in these winter months where it was like 30 below for however long. It is not uncommon to have a ton of them in the basement, and they'll kind of do their boy game thing. Sometimes I'll have uh, epic Nerf Wars, and I'll go downstairs and literally not know that that many Nerf bullets existed because they're everywhere in my house. Other times they'll bust out the Hot Wheels tracks and they'll make a track from from one corner of the basement all the way open through into the unfinished part of my basement to to literally make a car touch from one corner to the opposite corner of the house. And I I give a lot of kudos to their creativity. They they do a pretty good job of making some cool tracks. I give zero kudos to their cleanup ability because they leave it everywhere when they're done. Uh, Sometimes they'll play Nintendo Switch. We try and limit that a little bit. And other times they play this other game where they pile all their little boy bodies into the little room underneath the stairs. They got a little half door, a little tiny room thing. Like it's just dead space. So we're like, hey, we'll just turn it into a room. And so they'll go in there and they will take every pillow that they can find and every blanket that they can find, which is a ton, and they'll put them in there and then they'll play, aka they'll turn the lights off in WWE style wrestle. And this goes great until someone gets hurt, which they always do. Uh, the, the, the matter is not if, it's just when, how long is it going to take? And when one of them gets hurt, something normally happens. Either they'll run upstairs in expectation that I'm going to go, what's going on? Or else I'll have to go downstairs and talk to them to figure out what happened. And when I go try and figure out what happened, if there's five, six, or seven boys, probably five or six of them will be yell telling me their version of what just happened a moment ago. And what is interesting about this is how often the five, six boys will have a completely different story of what actually just happened. The stories unfolded in a certain way. They were all there. They were all witnesses. They were all present in real time. They were um, in the, the situation live, and yet their stories are extremely different over the quote-unquote truth of what just happened a couple minutes Ago, which raises the question for me as the adult, who do you believe knowing that you weren't actually down there to see what happened? Who's telling the truth? Who's giving you an accurate version of history? And who's giving you a slightly revised lie about what actually happened? 
For me, I have some history with these boys. Uh, we've been in the same neighborhood, and I've seen them for quite a few years. So uh, just honestly, I know who's a liar. There's one of them. He is the liar. Uh, I know who the instigator is. I know who the blamer is. That's Abel, my middle. Uh, and I know who the wimp is that I need to say, like, suck it up or go home, bud. Like, I know all of these stories, so I'm not clueless about them and, and how they kind of operate. Uh, but what if I was clueless? Who should I believe? Or even if I'm not clueless, who says that I get it right, knowing, again, that I wasn't actually down there for whatever happened in the dark room with all the pillows that caused the crying and, and maybe or maybe not uh, blood? How do I know I got it right? Maybe with this example, hold on to that and, and think maybe parallel to it with me to the classic game of telephone. Uh, I was thinking about that. I've heard of telephone all my life. I don't know if I actually remember a game of it being played, but I know specifically what happens in it. I don't know if you remember a version of it, but uh, in, in telephone, you have a person who gets, who gets to tell a story to the next person down, and then they hear it, and they tell it to the next person, and they tell it to the next, and the next, and the next, and, and so on and so forth. And, and what happens is there's an interesting part at the end where you get to compare the wild reality at the end with what started at the beginning. It's kind of weird that one single message with a group of people could be so altered or changed or botched up or messed up depending on how it was heard or relayed or interpreted or, or anything like that. Now, the, the nuances of it can kind of change the message. Now, keep in mind, in the game of telephone, there's not five, six, or seven boys trying to lie to me to tell me their version of the truth. There's just a group of people who their only goal is not to be deceptive, and yet they still mess it up, and they accidentally mess up the message by the time it gets to the end. The thing that the person at the end hears is often not even close to what was started with. Now, why do we bring up uh, the war zone in my basement and the game of telephone? It, it's because there's a similar kind of question that happens repeatedly when you talk about the, the Bible, and that is just this, how can we be certain about what's true? How do we know? You weren't there. I wasn't there. There's no video footage. It wasn't on TikTok or Instagram. How do you know what actually happened knowing that you weren't there? How do you know that the, the pages in the Bible that we're supposed to hang our hat on aren't fiction or altered? How can we be sure that they weren't adapted by someone? That maybe they didn't cut out the, the, the not so awesome parts and then maybe over exaggerate or, or over elevate the, the good things in order to kind of craft a story that kind of fits their narrative and what they want. How do we know that this didn't happen? How can we have confidence in the words that we find in the, body, in the Bible when it comes down to it, we just weren't there and nobody we know was there? So how in the world do we actually hang our hat on the words there? This is a common thing that you hear and maybe you have thought as well. When facing this question of how do we know that the Bible isn't altered or made up, and how do we know that it, that it hasn't been edited in order to do something nefarious, and how can we have confidence knowing that we weren't there firsthand to personally witness the things that happen? When that type of scenario comes up, there are a couple knee-jerk reactions that people fall into almost immediately there. And the first is this. Some will say, well, since I wasn't there to verify what happened in the actual live moment, case is closed, it's all fake. Fake news, it's not real, it can't be trusted, I will never believe it, I will never hang my hat on it, it 
just not even worth thinking about. And those people in this first uh, reaction, they don't dig into anything for truth. They don't investigate the, the claims. They don't try and kind of look into stuff. They just kind of decide, I wasn't there, so peace out. I, I'm done. Little thought, little need of an examination. Just it's all fake and I, I don't need any of it. Now, this crowd will often do something else in tandem with that, though. They'll often end up making fun of the Bible and people who believe in it at the same time. And they'll claim that other people who haven't ended up at the same place that they have are ignorant and gullible and they're too dumb and they lack intelligence to actually see fiction from reality. And they put this claim over the top of all believers, even though they've never actually looked for evidence to back up what they've landed in. They live off of blind faith is what they claim about the people in the Bible. But what is interesting about this group of people who reject it without looking into it and make fun of everyone else is they actually become guilty themselves of what they charge the other people with. They label others as ignorant, as people who are not smart enough into look in the, the details. They claim that people are, are blind to accept, the, accept something without looking into any proof, yet that's the exact thing they do with their rejection. They don't look into it. They just buy their own thesis and they accept quickly that the Bible is false because they said it is and they never actually doubt their doubts or see if their theory holds water. It's all fake. Anyone who believes in it is dumb. Forget it. And then the other group, they swing the pendulum the opposite way and they accept the Bible as true um, without looking at it at all. Right? They, they don't look at anything. They don't try and look into the history. They, it doesn't matter to them how many transcripts there are or how it was passed down or the accuracy of the transcripts or that nothing even comes close as a historical document of the, the number of transcripts and the accuracy. They're just fine with the words without looking into it. It's good. It's fine. I just believe. And, and while this option is preferable to the first, it still can maybe cause some issues in life, mainly when problems come to that person's life or their faith or maybe when someone gives them a question or pushes back on their faith, kind of in front of their face, when that type of, of thing happens, it causes them issues because they don't necessarily stand on any fact. They're just like, oh, it's, it's true because it's true. It's just blind allegiance. And even when the storm comes, they're like, oh, I just don't need anything else. I'll leave it at that. And this leaves a lot to be desired because when tough moments come in their life, they don't really have any foundation to stand on. And though they're like, ah, it's kind of true, they, 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 they maybe have some moments of doubt and they can't actually intelligently talk to anybody else because they've never looked into any of it. Both of these groups have something to be uh, in common. The immediate acceptor of the word and the immediate rejecter of the word, they come to different conclusions, but they get there the same way with no looking into it at all. I don't need any evidence. I know what I know. It's fake. I know what I know. It's real. None of us are going to look into it. What Luke wants to tell us at the beginning of this gospel writing is neither of those crowds is one that he wants you to be in. Right? He writes the book in order to give a detailed, thorough account. This is what went down so that believers back then and believers in the here and now may be able to have a foundation under their confidence in the personal work of Jesus. You don't have to have blind faith. There's actually a ton of evidence behind it. It's cool that you just believe, but here, let me give you some evidence as well. I'm going to give you something to back up your faith. Now, knowing that we're starting a new book, who is the author of Luke? Well, it's Luke. 
Who is Luke? Luke was a doctor who was converted during the apostles' ministry, meaning he wasn't always a believer or follower of God, but then in the apostles, the early ministry of the church, probably specifically Paul, he comes to faith. And this Luke is a Gentile, meaning he's not Jewish. Uh, he's an outsider in this regard. Uh, he doesn't have the, the, the same preconceived notions or the stories or the understanding or the lineage that all of the, the Jewish people did. He kind of comes as an outsider and he writes from maybe just a, a blank slate perspective. This is who Jesus is and this is what he did and I have no expectation going into it. Why would that maybe be helpful? Imagine getting a document sent to you that is written about the life of a president. Uh, and later you find out that the person who wrote it, and you hung all of your understanding of this man by this document, later you find out the guy who wrote it is his grandson, a, a person in his line related to him. Uh, in that case, you may end up thinking, well, he probably wrote that with a bias. He probably wrote it with, with a certain lens. He definitely has a dog in the fight, his entire family line. He has a specific kind of bent that he's probably writing that with. Well, Luke not being of Jewish descent and writing this gospel for us gives us a perspective that has no possible historical bias. I, 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 I'm just coming in fresh and here's, here's what I've seen. Luke wasn't from their people. He wasn't immersed in their stories. So here's the thing that we need to understand. He had no vested interest in propping up a Jewish man to be the savior of the world because he wasn't a Jew. He had no reason to do that. He was a different voice speaking as an outsider who had been brought into the family of Christ about this Jesus who had changed the entire world. That's a great perspective to have. Now, we know Luke was a Gentile, not Jewish, because he was a companion of Paul. So he was, he was converted, and then later he joined Paul on the mission field in some of Paul's missionary journeys. And on one of these journeys, Paul wrote the book of Colossians. In the fourth chapter of Colossians, Paul's giving a kind of roll call to, to who the believers with him are in the moment and he's ministering, and he decides to put this roll call into a split. Here's the circumcised crew who's with me. Here's the not circumcised crew who's with me. Luke is in the not. You're like, oh, oh, weird way to put it, but I, Gentile, okay, I, I got it. Why would he do that? Long, long talk we, we're just not going to go into today, but we know that he is not Jewish because of it. And this is also where you learn he's a physician. He's a doctor by trade who all of a sudden Jesus has transformed his life and he's going across the, 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 the region to spread the name and fame of Jesus as a non-Jew who had no reason to do anything like that. He, there was no reason for him to do any of this. So in the beginning of the New Testament, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're called the the synoptic gospels. This means that they all have uh, similar stories or the same view or the same general theme, but even though they have the same general theme, they have a little bit of a different flavor. And it's not that they contradict each other or they're fighting each other. It's just that they have a little bit of a different way to articulate the details and the life and the work of Jesus. Mark is kind of a storyteller. He gets to the point. He keeps your uh, attention. It's kind of impactful. John is a bit of a philosopher. I think he's probably a musician. He's talking about love and abiding all the time. He just kind of has this different vent on how he deals with things. But Luke writes the gospel with this different feel, the feel of an investigative reporter. 
He digs deep into the stories, looking for all the proof and the details and the timelines and evidence and names and dates and events. He gives street names so that you'll associate exactly the space and time in the area that he is talking about. And he gives leaders and people in power and people in positions. He's giving all of this to build a case to corroborate the life of Jesus because people could have gone and checked. Like, oh, that, like, wow, that guy was a real dude. This is where Luke as a physician comes into play. He is clinical, he's precise, he's thorough. He writes everything with this type of of precision that that the other guys probably wouldn't have wrote with. Now the things uh, we claim in Christianity, here's where we need to pivot and understand, the things that we claim in Christianity were not done in secret. They weren't hidden from the world. They weren't done in some private ceremony in a closed room. The things that we claim in Christianity were done in space and time. Therefore, they leave a historical footprint. There's a mark on the world. There's an impact of Christianity in the actual world. And even people outside of the faith can look for that imprint in the breadcrumbs of what happened. And they go, oh, it, wow, there's, you can actually see it there. This is important to examine and wrestle with because other world religions don't have this. When you begin to look into it and you you look at other large world religions, they're written with no context and no evidence and no miracles that are witnessed by anybody, just uncorroborated stories, unsubstantiated claims with a guy going, Kool-Aid, you want some? No, nobody saw that stuff. That's how all of them are. Want some maybe proof? The Muslim faith rejects Jesus as Messiah, claims he was just a good guy, and they elevate Muhammad as their prophet in the way. Now in that, he's kind of the the way to God, he's kind of their their savior, but much of the weight surrounding him is propped up by the story that Muhammad teleported in the middle of the night to Mecca. This is their holy land, right? This is miracle, that's his claim to fame. We know he's legit because in the middle of the night, he just over to another place and he's teleported. But when Muhammad was teleported in the middle of the night, nobody saw him. No witnesses. Uh, he, he didn't like leave a note. He didn't leave a shoe. Nobody saw him. There was just, just trust me, I totally did it. Here's my big claims of faith and you should believe him because I said, not a breadcrumb anywhere. Just a man saying, hey, you should probably believe me. Let's pivot. Mormonism. Joseph Smith claimed to be visited by God. Were there other people with him? No, he was walking in the woods alone. He was out on a stroll. All of a sudden, God comes to Joseph Smith, and he says, hey, I've got some golden plates for you, and an angel's going to give them to you, and then I'm going to give you the gift to be able to interpret them. Right after that, the angel's going to take them back, and you're going to write out the faith of Mormonism. Has anybody seen the plates? No. Did anybody see the moment? No. Was anybody walking with him? No, just a man alone in the woods who says he participated in a miracle and is God's new champion of the world. Trust me, I know what I'm talking about. You understand what I mean? These great claims and nobody saw any of it. Not a breadcrumb, not a footprint, no evidence in history, just some guy saying, trust me. What we need to know is Christianity isn't like that. So much of the world is trying to get you to believe that you're a fool. It's all fake. You're an idiot. It's made up. We're the only ones with breadcrumbs. We're the only ones that history actually shows our Savior. And Luke wants to pile together all of this evidence to make an overwhelming case that Jesus was real and he did this stuff. You're going to have to decide what to do with that. 
But the foolishness of some people going, I don't even think that was a real man. Like, well, you're an idiot. It's historical. You can look everywhere. Unbelievers actually believe it. He drops specific names and moments and landmarks all to give what he calls an orderly account. I'm going to bring all of this chaos into order for you to have an orderly account so that you can see the evidence of Jesus. Now, this is helpful because it avoids what's called a circular or secular argument. That's when one thing uses itself to validate itself. So if the Bible had to go, hey, I'm true, trust me, this other verse says I'm true, you'd be like, okay, and maybe you can get there. But Luke does this because he wants to show us all of this detailed account of the life of Jesus and people who saw and people around and people who were affected and people in power and even the reaction to him. He does all of this and now even archaeologists are going back and, and kind of testing their work and seeing the things that Luke wrote are real and it's all being substantiated even non-Christian historians who their only job is to document for certain emperors what happened are writing about this man named Jesus who caused everyone to turn their life upside down. This is a gift to us because we have other historical things to to kind of validate the things in the word. We're not just going, it's true because it's true. There was a man named Jesus. We see this in history. Now Luke did an amazing job in this gospel, so amazing that he is called by many the greatest historian of all time. He's not a sloppy writer. Uh, this is a masterpiece full of evidence building a, what we call a, 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 a rock solid case about the life of Jesus. That's why the gospel of Luke is epically longer than the other gospels. Luke was giving all of this detail in order to give us confidence that things that, the things that we hear about Jesus were actually happened in the realm of history. Now, why else would this be necessary, especially for believers in Luke's time, to give evidence, to build a case so that you can have confidence uh, later on, especially for us, but why would it be needed to write this for the, for the early church, for, for Luke's time, for the first hundred years surrounding Jesus's life. Well, imagine a man came to our region and did stuff that shook up the entire region. Imagine a man coming to where you live and he performs miracles and, and his just kind of uh, beginning is just, oh, I'm just going to turn water into wine for a wedding. And and then he feeds 5,000 people out of a kid's picnic. And then he's like, yeah, that was fun. I'll do it again. And he does it uh, again, and people see it. And then he heals people who are diseased. He brings a man up from the dead. He casts out evil spirits. He challenges the religious elite of the, the day. He claims to be the one who can forgive sins right before being killed on a Roman cross next to two common criminals. And then he raised from the dead and hundreds of people are documented to have seen him. So many people saw him that they had to start this new theory that Rome didn't actually kill him. They beat him pretty bad and they let him off the cross. He didn't actually die. Too many people saw him to believe that he died. And I was just kind of hurt. Nobody ever kind of walked away from a Roman crucifixion. And he also claimed to be God and the savior of the world. If this were to happen in time and space... Imagine the commotion that would ensue afterwards. Imagine all the people who would weigh in and have a hot take 
And they would write about it and they'd tell stories about it. Remember that game of telephone? This person tell this person and this person and this person. We're not really good at giving the same message over and over and over again. And imagine the people who try and capitalize off of it financially. Yeah, Jesus came to me and he gave me these rocks. Want to buy one? Like it'll probably get your uh, mom and dad out of hell. Want one? Like all of these things would have happened all over the place. People would be trying to make a name for themselves out of the story of Jesus. It would have been very difficult for the early church to understand with all of these people in real life, seeing the things of Jesus and them still being alive at the time, how do you know who's telling the truth and who's not? How do you know what to believe and what to not? That's why this gospel is written. And he addresses it head on at the beginning. He says, many people have tried to compile a narrative a story, an account about the things accomplished among us by Jesus. And this word accomplished, we won't chase it too long. When he's saying accomplished, he's talking about the accomplishment of all the stuff that the Old Testament was pointing to. This Jesus did it. And he goes, there was a lot of people who saw it and there was a lot of eyewitnesses uh, who, who saw the things that he did. And the problem is though, even though all of those people saw it and their cases are good, some of their cases are fragmented and there's a lot of other people who are writing bad stuff. So I'm gonna write this book. I'm gonna sift the good out of the bad and I'm gonna give you an orderly account and it's gonna help you be able to understand what's going on. So I wrote this book to give an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, I want to unfragment, clear the weeds, clear the mess, make sure you have a detailed account because there's so many things out there about Jesus right now. So the, the question that we may have at the front side, okay, cool. He, he wrote it for this reason, uh, give you an understanding of who to believe. That, that's neat. Who's Theophilus? Like who in the world is that and who says most excellent Theophilus when they're introducing a, a person? Well, Theophilus was a name, I guess technically it still is a name, we just don't use it very much, and it means beloved of God. Literally, God loves you. That's a beautiful name and a powerful name. Can you imagine that just being your identity every day you hear this name, beloved of God? And even though it's powerful and it's good, it, if you've known me for a while, I've got a jacked up sense of humor, it also makes me laugh. If you imagine a Southern woman not very different from my own mother, in a house, yelling from the kitchen, God loves you, boy, but if you pick on your brother one more time, I will beat you like a pinata. God brought you you into this world, but I will take you out, beloved or not, right? That's not helpful, but it's just how my mind works. We don't know exactly who this Theophilus is, though, which is weird, isn't it? How can such a detail-oriented book that has the specific role of making clear things that were cloudy or murky, kick off. Like, you don't even get out of their introduction without remembering to to help solidify the identity of this person that they name in in the opening. How come nobody would know who that is? They were detailed enough to write the road to Emmaus. Like, that... That's like mentioning stadium in our town. He could do that, but he forgot to actually solidify who this Theophilus is. And I don't actually think this is a mistake. I think it is the providential hand of God. While I do think Theophilus was a real, actual person, when Luke says Theophilus of God, there's a double meaning. It's opening to all the beloved of God. 
It's a writing to the church. If you are a follower of God, if you are a Christian, if you are saved, this is actually to you. If you've been reconciled to God through Christ, if you are an enemy of God and now have been brought near, this is written to you so that you personally will have confidence in the person and the work of Jesus so that your faith may not waver in times of doubt because you know that the things that it says about Jesus are real. I think Luke is laying out this through the Holy Spirit at the opening of the book. We need to keep in mind, yes, he's an investigative reporter and he's getting pieces. This is still under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Though he's taking different accounts, the whole ends up greater than the pieces because it begins to be the exhaled word of God before us. But through the Holy Spirit in the opening of the book, I think he's saying this, this world is gonna be hard. There's going to be trouble, and there's going to be pain, and there's going to be chaos, and there's going to be strife that comes your way down the road simply for associating with Jesus. The Western church has loved to try and almost remove that, but the early church knew this greatly. If you follow him, he was killed for the things he said. It's going to cause you some issue. And things are going to be hard enough to stand in line with this Jesus on this side of eternity before he puts it all together. I'm going to make a clear account of Jesus for you to pull from in order to not make things harder than they already are. I want you to have confidence in this. It's going to be difficult out there. The waves are going to be high and moments are going to be stressful at some times. But I want you to have confidence in the words that you have heard and the faith that you have about this Jesus and all the things that he came to fulfill, that he is true and he is good. So I wrote you this book. Dig in. See Jesus through it. What I find fascinating as well is the length of the Gospel of Luke is the attribute that causes many churches not to preach through the book at all. Full disclosure, I'm like, should we do Mark again? Luke's long. <laughs> Blake's like, no, <laughs> we should do all of them. I'm like, okay, you're right, okay. But if you just do a little Google search of your friend's churches, I bet you they probably haven't gone through the book of Luke. Why? Because it's long. and like, this is going to take two years. It's a long book. Yet the length is the detail that makes the orderly account of the book. And Luke says it's a strength and not a weakness or a problem. Friends, we need to understand this as we begin to walk down a long road. The detail isn't a flaw, it's the power of the design. For us, we look at this book each week together as a church, and when we get tempted to zone out or to get like adult ADHD or to want something new because we're just programmed to get bored, we get to see Jesus more clearly and more fully each and every week through this. We've we've gone through Old Testament books, we've gone through Romans, we've gone through Hebrews, and those those have been awesome. Now we just get to look at Jesus for a long period of time. That's a really, really good thing, and we get to believe in him and what he has done more and more and more. If we call Christianity our faith, then we need to understand that Christianity is also fundamentally a call to follow Jesus. It's not a question box. Do you think he's real? Yes. Do you want to go to hell? No. Okay, Christian. No, no, it's follow me. If that means to emulate him and be molded by him and transformed by him, then the detail isn't an enemy to you. It's a blessing because it saturates you with the life of the one that you're meant to follow. How can you follow the thing you don't know anything about? The gospel of Mark is great and it's powerful and it's concise. This gives us a wealth of things to pull from. And at the end, you go, man, I know Jesus more fully. I understand what he did more. I understand where he walked more. Man, I I pray that that changes me and it transforms me. You will be tempted and so will I. to be like, bro, we've been in this for a while. 
lock, lock back in when you get there. So we know he wrote the, the book. Luke wrote it. We know the general methodology. He took all of these stories and the things that he saw and, and he brought them into an orderly account so that we'd have clarity and certainty about the things that we've heard and what we put our faith into. But we also need to look to the greater why. Right? We're like, it's how. He kind of took it this way and he did it for this reason so you have confidence. But there's a greater theme or a greater why or a greater premise of the book. And we find that all the way forward in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. We'll get there in 2027. It won't really be that long. But Jesus actually gives us himself the theme. He says, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Yes, it's so you can have confidence. Yes, so you can know more stories about Jesus. Yes, so you can have a rock solid faith and understanding of what he did and what he said Jesus goes, hey, but make sure you understand. This book is primarily so that you understand the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man was Jesus' way to identify himself. It was one of his preferred ways uh, to, to, to talk about himself. And this is a reference to a person who has the authority to judge the nations. It's pulled from the Old Testament, specifically in, in Daniel. I, I can't remember, maybe in Isaiah as well, but, but it's a very specific thing. This guy has the power to judge entire nations. So Jesus starts with this thematic statement to us where he tells your heart and mind, I have the authority to judge. You can say whatever you want. I have the authority to judge, the ability to hand down sentences. And yet, though I have the authority to judge and to punish and to condemn, I've come instead to save and pardon what was lost. There's these things that, that bother us, much like the, the moment at the tree with, with Adam in the garden where you start to believe, like, God doesn't want the best for me. He's trying to hurt for me. And things will be funner or more easy or just better with, without him. Jesus is saying, I haven't come to hurt you. I've come to find you and so that you may be found. Understand your disposition and how you are in this world and what's going on. I haven't come to steal anything. I've come to put you back together. You may not like authority structures and you may not like judges and you may not like power. I've come not to wield the sword over your head. I've come to find you. Jesus is telling us, man, many will expect something from me and they'll want things from me. There are times that Jesus did miracles, but when we look through the gospel, there's times where like other people are around and, and they probably weren't healed as well. Many people will expect things and many people will say they know who I am and what I'm about or why I came. But Jesus is saying, but I want you to hear from my own mouth to your heart, I came on a search and rescue mission for what was lost. That's why I came. That's my incarnation. That's why I put on flesh. That's why I stepped into the creation. This wasn't, this wasn't like a popularity tour that I was like, it's just my time and I want people to like cheer for me. I've come so that what was lost may be found. I've come for you. If you're a believer, this is an extremely personal book to you. I've come for you. When you realize that, then Luke takes on like a deeper meaning. Every detail, guys, there's a lot of them. And every word and every action isn't random. It's one move out of many and more and more and more to show you that Christ came for you. It's one note in a symphony of God's love towards those who are lost to redeem them. Pull them out of the pits of hell and say, I will pay for what you've done and I'll redeem you and I will give you a new name in the whole process. 
man, then the aha comes when you look deeper. It's just kind of mind-blowing as the son of man, the judges came to find what was lost. And then you begin to look at like the, the, the chapter 15, and then you notice the story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, the story of the lost son, over and over and over. Each page and each moment is a manifestation of the God-man who's come to restore once what things were gone. Have you ever lost something? You're like, it's gone forever. In this, I've come to restore what was gone forever. Something that was not findable, not fixable. Gone, gone, gone. I've come so that it would be restored. Christ, the son of man, the judge, came to not execute punishment over all that were lost. He came to spill his blood so that some that were lost may be found by putting their faith in him. Here's the thing. You and I are going to have a long time where you and I have to decide what in the world that means to us, though. Guys, this is not mental ascent. This is not facts that are divorced from life. The same way that the the story of Christ happens in reality and in history and leaves an imprint, if this is true, it leaves an imprint on you as well. What will you do with this reality? The tension that we'll need to wrestle with and mature in is Luke wrote this account under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give us certainty to make clear the account surrounding Jesus' life and his works. Luke wrote this to bring you facts. I'm bringing you not airy, ethereal stuff. This isn't artsy. These are facts in the realm of history, but what do you and I need to understand? Facts will never save you. Facts do not save you. Faith is what saves. The Bible tells us it's the only thing that pleases God. Praise God that we have these facts and we have these things that we can see but what we do with them is what's going to be important over this. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, but the conviction of things not seen. Yeah, the facts are what are seen, but it's the stuff that's unseen that that, that kind of transforms and does a work in us. What do we mean here? Luke brings facts, things seen, details about Jesus, And while that's a gift to receive these facts about Jesus, we'll have to deal with faith when it comes to our own personal salvation. The facts will do nothing for you. Luke brings us facts about Jesus' words to us and over us, but it is only by faith that we believe in and let our life be, be kind of walked out in line with those words that Jesus said over you and I that form our identity. And then Luke brings us facts concerning real people that Jesus has changed, but it is only your faith in Christ that will cause Jesus to change you. So the question becomes, who is this Jesus that we get to see every single week to you? In the most personal way that I can put this, not who is Jesus to me as the one with the microphone most of the time, or Jesus to your MC leader, or your mama, or your best friend, or anything like that. Who is Jesus to you, and what does that mean, and how does that get walked out in your life? That's what has to be wrestled with in this book. Who is he? Not what facts do you know? Not what stories have you heard? Who is this Jesus? Is he life to you? Remember the words of Christ? I'm the bread of life. I'm the water. And when you drink of it, you'll never be thirsty. Again, I'm the way, the truth, the life, the door. Who is he to you? Is he savior? Is he the king that you trust and feel like he is changing you and you've, you've tethered your, your identity to him? Or is he just like this ethereal idea in these, these sets of uh, of of maybe uh, ways that you treat the world or is he just a historical person who lived a long time ago? Who is he? 
the hope for us as we dive into this series together moving forward is that Jesus would become more real as you behold him. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but that he would transform you as you've seen him more and more. That the reality of who Jesus is to you would be fuller and have more life and breathe in a way that it hasn't before. As you see him and you behold him and you're saturated with him. That each story and encounter and moment that you see of his life would form you more and more and more. And they'd be sweeter and more beautiful to you. You'd see he's the one that came to seek after you. The hope is that you would more intimately know him by the time we get done and be the one that you would trust more and more with every portion of your life, not just some of them that you feel comfortable with. Here's the thing. I am eager to learn with you at the feet of Jesus. Right, we've done all, the, the way I've, I've kind of joked about it is, as we've talked about in elder meetings, we're just going to straight sit at the feet of Jesus for a really long time and it's going to be good. I'm desperately praying that the Lord would bring this type of kind of a revival and awakening to our hearts as we see him more, that he would become more sweet and we'd see, man, he came to seek and save the lost, and that was me, and he's still working on me. He is so good. And we were part of this family of God, of lost things that God is saving and redeeming and doing a work in. Man, I hope that it transforms us more and more. Man, you guys can come back up. As we go through this, and if your faith is in Jesus, like I've shown all the cards, my hope is that he'd be more real to you. And then if your faith is not, that you would actually put your faith in him. That he would be the one that not maybe you believe is just a real figure, but he'd be the one who is your savior that you follow and and see and and have salvation through. The Bible tells us just God created and yet we've sinned and we've broken our relationship with the father and someone has to pay for that sin. And Jesus came down going, "I I will pay for it. I will seek what is lost and I will redeem you and I will make you whole and I will save you if you put your faith in me. The hope is that we would all do that and we would grow and walking in that would be beautiful and good. So as we kind of take this series on, we'll come to the table in the middle of worship like we always do, remembering the reality that we have to feed at the table through the reality of what Jesus has done. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. But the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, the hope is that we would be built up in the reality of who Christ is. That you would come and see You would once again come to the table. I don't know what your week has been like. Maybe the Lord has been sweet and near and good, or or maybe you've been distracted and out there, or maybe maybe you've fallen into some sin this week. You come to the table and go, "It's it's your body and blood. It always has been. Let me see again that you are the solidifier of my identity. You came to seek and save, and there's only what you've done, and you get to take the bread and dip it into the cup and know it's the work of Jesus and the penalty paid through his blood that saves us. And once again, we get to be built up in this reality. I hope that your heart feeds off the reality of who Christ is. You don't have to be a member to take with us. We just ask that your faith be in Jesus. Guys, can we agree it'll be a good thing to just look at Jesus for a long period of time? Man, my hope is that he does a good work in your heart and mind through that. Stand and pray with me as we begin to worship in song.